it's almost heartbreaking. An agency shows up, they scare the bejesus out of people who've lived on the property sometimes for generations, who think they're going to lose everything, cause all kinds of stress, force them to essentially take up a second job of campaigning against the project, and the next thing you know, it's canceled. <laughs> I mean, good for the landowner, but daggone. This is Infrastructure Junkies. Welcome, Infrastructure Junkies, to your show. This is a podcast created by right-of-way professionals for right-of-way professionals. The Infrastructure Junkies podcast is the voice of the right-of-way industry, exploring eminent domain, right-of-way acquisition, and infrastructure development. Infrastructure Junkies, welcome to the latest episode in our fall lineup. I'm Dave Arnold. And I'm Kristen Short. And if you've been listening in this season... You've heard our good friend Howard Mansfield come on to discuss parts of his fabulous book, The Habit of Turning the World Upside Down. We've said it before, and I can't reiterate it enough, what a great resource this book can be for our journey to become top-notch right-of-way professionals. As you see, the book wasn't written for the right-of-way industry. It was written for the regular person who's interested in what was going on. The book itself is divided into two parts, the first half is historic information about the evolution of American property interests and property rights in the United States. It makes it clear how unique our approach is to property vis-a-vis the rest of the world, how we value, quote, property in motion, unquote, and how unjust and wasteful our European ancestors were when it came to real property. The second half of the book is comprised of real-life stories of real people who were impacted by right-of-way and infrastructure projects and the toll that it took on individuals. One of the featured individuals, a gentleman impacted by a right-of-way project back in the 1960s by the name of Romaine Tenney, didn't have the benefit of the Uniform Act, and he paid with his life. You see, Romaine committed suicide rather than face displacement and loss of his family farm. We've had the author of The Habit of Turning the World Upside Down, Howard Mansfield, on the show twice previously this season. Each time, he covered one historic chapter and one human impact story. If you've listened to those episodes, you can understand the importance of our unique history with real property and the unintended consequences of our actions on the real people that it affected. Those stories are lessons to be learned by our right-of-way industry. Today, Howard returns to join us for the third installment of this series. We're going to discuss two more chapters from his book, The Habit of Turning the World Upside Down, and see what lessons there are to learn from those chapters. Hi, Howard. Welcome back to our show. Hey, hi. Hello. Great to be back. We're so happy to have you on. And of course, we've got our copies of your book. I know a lot of our listeners have devoured this book as well. Listeners, if you haven't yet, you must. The Habit of Turning the World Upside Down. So we know your book pretty well now. And our listeners know your book and some of the tales and things that we've learned from it. But we don't know a lot about the man, the myth, the legend, Mr. Howard Mansfield. (laughs) So so if you're willing, I have a few kind of human interest questions about you to let our listeners get to know you a little better. So I'm just going to, these, some of these are softballs. I'll tell you that. But here's my first question for you. What did you do before you were an author? That's a softball question. Uh, (laughs) I have a book contract right out of college. So I've just been writing the whole time. Wow. Um, Right out of college, you started writing. 
Yeah, I'm not saying that book was a success. That's a whole long story, but I would have been, <laughs> been right. That's a, just a too long a story. But I, I, yeah, I've been writing ever since uh, for magazines, newspapers, and writing books and giving talks. And it's what I do. It's what you do. Never even had a job at a bowling alley. I had some, because I've had some pretty gnarly, as I used to say, uh, part-time jobs. I've worked in bookstores. I've worked in factories. I worked in door-to-door sales with some hardcore door-to-door salesmen, which is really <laughs> eye-opening. Yeah. I mean, so I, I've had those kind of jobs, and I, I've had enough jobs to know that there's a lot of bad work in the world, and you better get your act together and do what you love. And be it, and be nice, be nice to the people that are doing the gnarly work, right? Absolutely. I don't even give a hard time to those cold callers, you know, right. or the telemarketers, because I know they're stuck in a cubicle someplace or something. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's interesting. So you are and have always been a writer. That's fascinating. This one is a softball. Do you have any pets? We have a wonderful border collie named Thurber, called after James Thurber. James Thurber, the, you know, the great artist in New Yorker writer, was blind in one eye mm-hmm. because he was playing William, when he was little, he was playing William Tell with his brother and got hit in the eye with an arrow. And he, and he lost sight in that eye and later the other eye. So Thurber only has sight in one eye. And he came from a, a border collie breed who sends all his dogs out to work. They're out there moving sheep, cattle, pigs, but he doesn't have depth. In, so he's here. He's quite a character. I love uh, a pet so with have, a name that has a story behind it. That's great. So it's a border is, collie. Yeah, before yeah, the border collies will just take command of your household and get it in their order. Before that, we had two other rescue border collies. We rescued this run pig named who we named Christopher Hogwood, and he became this character. My wife wrote. My wife Sam Montgomery wrote a, a book about him, a best-selling book about him called uh, "The Good Good Pig." And he, <laughs> this pig, even though he he had a network. Even though he's in his pen most of the time, except when he escaped. But we'd come home and just people would be visiting him. People we didn't know would be visiting him. He's a real character. Wow. I, I love it. And I love if it. If my wife had her way, we would have a, a zillion pets. But that's another story. <laughs> <laughs> okay. This is another easy one, probably. What is your favorite dessert? Ah, Perfect. This time of year, fresh blueberry pie. Oh. You go out and you pick blueberries, or my wife picks blueberries. We have some blueberry bushes. And she makes the blueberry pie this way. It's a graham cracker crust. It's a base of either cream cheese or mascarpone, this Italian cheese, uh-huh. which is like cream cheese. And then fresh blueberries and just a little bit of cooked blueberries to bind it together. Then you take that, you add, at this time of year, fresh corn from the farm stand, fresh tomatoes, some mozzarella slice. Then you can really keep going. Get about, oh, cup several dozen fresh oysters from either Maine or Cape Cod. Add a few friends, have them bring over a, a bottle of dark rum and it'll make dark and stormies. Or you could drink Prosecco. There you have it. That'll carry you deep into the winter, just that one dinner. We'll be right over. That sounds incredible. <laughs> you had me at oysters. Right. Right. That sounds yeah, so the good. the oysters are phenomenal. <clears throat> the oyster, and shucking oysters with everybody before dinner is a riot. And we've never, there's a two-drink limit when we're shucking oysters, but we have never sent anyone to the emergency room. <laughs> That's a dangerous that. cooking experience. I've watched my brother do it, and the whole time I was nervous. Yeah, yeah oh. you can really, you can do a number on yourself. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. Okay, do you have hobbies outside of growing blueberries and tending to animals occasionally? Well, we get out in our kayaks around here. Mm. Uh, we go hiking with our dog. And then it's just a lot of stuff to be fixed around the house, the barn, and the field, and mm-hmm. everything like that. So no real hobbies in that sense. It's just you know, doing things, seeing friends, that kind of thing. That sounds marvelous. Okay, last question. No, actually, I have two more. I All do right. have two more. Do you have any pet peeves? Who doesn't? <laughs> I have a, 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 a lot. I think I'll skip that answer. 
Okay. I, I think I think we'll all fall up on everybody ranting about everything, and I'll step aside on that one. But uh, yeah, of course I do. Oh my God, don't get me going. Good answer. Good answer. <laughs> that is a great answer. All right, this really is the last question, and it is this: Who is your second favorite author? Of course, behind yourself. Second favorite author. That's really hard because I have a number of authors that I admire for a great number of things. I'll give you two real quick. Peter Mathiasen wrote this great book, The Snow Leopard. Mm-hmm. Uh, he goes he goes to Nepal looking for the snow leopard, which is impossible to see. But it's really about what's happening in his life. The first time I read through it, I said, oh, you know, good book. But then I would read just a page each morning like before I wrote instead of reading. Usually I'll read poetry. I read that. And what's not in the book? It's just amazing. Kind of hard to explain it. What he left out, its there's such a yearning in the spaces of what he left behind. It's a terrific book. Another book that I, I would say I just really love, another author is a fellow named James Salter. He just died a few years ago. And he wrote this memoir called Burning the Days. And it begins like a usual memoir. I grew up here. I did this. And then he was a fighter pilot in Korea. And you just feel the coldness and the loneliness of flying and the excitement of flying in these MiGs around. And he has this amazing way. He could write, he'll have a character introduce this character in one sentence, the character will appear in the other sentence, and the third sentence, the character's dead. And you feel more <laughs> for him than you felt like in a book of like 800 pages for a character. And these are incomplete sentences. These sentences, any writing he chooses, are incomplete sentence. He has, he's a conjurer. He's, he writes beautiful sentences. There's questions about his books, of course, but... He can just get such movement and such feeling in his sentences. It, it's I don't know. It's breathtaking. So I would just that's one of the one of the many writers I go back to a lot. Well, uh, Howard, not to create any problems for you, but isn't your wife yes. a writer? <laughs> oh no! Do we need to edit that out? Is she, is she going to listen? <laughs> she, oh, she, I don't think she will. But uh, she's my let's say my my she's my favorite my most she's my editor my most important editor. I'm, I edit her. She edits me. I rely on her. She relies on me. I do love her books. She writes beautifully about animals and people's relationship to animals. And she has a new book coming out about turtles and all these people who are saving turtles and all these different ways to put. Like a turtle could be hit by a car. You think that's it. And these women figure out a way to reconstruct the shell. And eventually, over time, the turtle will be able to walk again, even though it's paralyzed and everything. They take a long time, but they do these amazing acts of healing. And then it could go on to live 50, 60, 70 years more. Fascinating. Uh, yeah, she wrote this uh, a book about octopus and called The Soul of an Octopus. It pops up on bestseller still. And it's just this creature couldn't be more alien than us. And yet you can kind of get a connection with them. And what are they thinking? This is an amazing intelligence. Yeah. So she has an amazing facility with that and with making connections with the people around them as well. Well, I can't thank I you enough. No, that was <laughs> wonderful. I can't thank you enough for sharing a little bit with us and with our listeners about Howard Mansfield. We are delighted to have you on again and just kind of realized today we haven't really gotten to know you outside of this book. So I really appreciate it. True. Well, thank you. Thank you both. So let's turn back to the habit of turning the world upside down. And the first chapter mm-hmm. we're going to discuss is entitled The Last Medieval Claim. It's a historic lesson in property, quote, unquote, ownership. And I put ownership in quotes because. Honestly, I still struggle with the concept of property, quote-unquote, ownership, and what makes us think we can own real property. But that's a Dave problem. That's not a Howard problem. It all took place in, <laughs> Howard's, it all took place in Howard's native state of New Hampshire, but unfortunately, it's representative of property struggles throughout the English colonies. 
This lesson that we're about to discuss involves land grabs. It involves litigation, greed, callousness, struggles for land, squatters, you name it. And some of the players in this story literally never set foot on North American soil. So with that introduction, Howard, where would you like to start? I'll tell you the story is a thumbnail sketch. 1629, Captain Mason gets this grant of land from the court of St. James, and he's granted this big stretch of land, and great, he's going to set up a feudal realm, and his heirs are going to live off the rents, the land rents and everything like that. Sends over cattle, sends over, builds a mill, dies at age 40-something, dead. So then for the next 150 years, this land claim plagues plagues the province of New Hampshire and the province of Massachusetts. And they each have competing claims for the land. You could be clearing land in some little town that's developing. Not only would a rent collector from Massachusetts show up, a rent collector from New Hampshire could show up. And also, all of a sudden, here's this guy and his heirs over in England saying, oh, no, it's really my land. It's the king's land. You owe me money. So this is like a mess. And obviously, the colonists just, which time they are, they're still Englishmen, send them back. It passes down, it passes down various things. The grandson, one of his grandsons, changes his name, as the will says, goes to the court of St. James like 17 times, petitions the king. And in one of those petitions, with Massachusetts fighting New Hampshire, because eventually the border is drawn just about where it is today, just because of that. But here's a key takeaway about this. The idea of property changes radically by the time of the American Revolution. So what you have here is a failed business plan. What Captain Mason wanted to do was set up a feudal realm, and that just wasn't going to happen. I'll just read you this paragraph. The young republic shed all the finely sliced feudal privileges and rights that define property. No more night service, a skewage, burgage, frank chameleon, invalidson, ties to the clergy, fetal, cority, primogenitor, dignities, all gone. These incorporal hereditaments vanished. Land became a product. Buy it, use it, trade it, sell it. It's not something that gives you a say in who the next minister is. It's not required to stay in your family as long as there are heirs. It's not required to be passed to the eldest son. And most importantly, it doesn't belong to the king. Americans wanted a market. They would own their land free, clear, and absolute once the native Indians were dispossessed. And then I just read you just one quote by Gordon. This a fantastic historian. He said, Indeed, the entire American Revolution could be summed up by the radical transformation Americans made in their understanding of property. So this is a huge change. And yet, this line from this claim is still on the map today, if you look at a map of New Hampshire. Because, I'm not going to go through this whole thing, but it was decided that his claim said he owned all the land 60 miles inland from the coast. And then someone decided, oh, that's a curve. So they decided to survey a curve, and eventually the proprietors who bought his claim later on said, oh, let's use nautical miles on land because we'll get more land. So they did that. And then 18 years later, it's, let's reserve it. But there's two rivers here. Let's have the folk guy on both, and let's use an ellipse. So they got more land. So essentially they thought they had bought, oh, like 200,000 acres, and they bought like over 2 million acres and made a fortune over time. So if you look at the map, uh, ever see that illustration with the, is it the wine goblet or is it a profile of a person? So until you kind of look at the map and say, wait a minute, why are all these town boundaries kind of leaning and leaning? It's because they're drawn in reference to this curve. And so it's a crazy thing. It's one of the oddest lines ever drawn in North America. 
And the chapter starts with this little monument, a little, little granite obelisk. What is it, like five feet tall? It's off in the woods. It says, here marks, you know, this great claim. So here's a guy who wanted to, to like, establish a feudal realm. Here's a remnant when they thought New England stretched to the quote-unquote South Seas. And you have this stumpy granite monolith standing in the woods. Kind of, when I last saw it, kind of heaved over hmm. to the east hmm. from the frost. That's it. That was the end of his empire. And from there, as I say in the book, America begins. The westward migration, manifest destiny, chasing off of the Native Americans, every, everything like that. It's all there. Yeah. Well, so it's a, a representative episode. A couple of quick points. Number one, yeah. our surveyor listeners, and we have a lot of surveyors who listen. Oh, yes. Will, this is beautifully surveyed. They will testify to how hard it is to survey a curved line, right? Yes, yes. And <laughs> it's, it's not how it's done. Yeah. yeah, and they did a beautiful job with it. Was it a cord or something? Parts of a circle? Something from way back someone drew on a blackboard for us in some geometry class. Yeah, it was beautifully surveyed by this team, and they left marks in the trees and everything. And the, and then just to put this in context, this story, Howard, started in the, in the 1600s, right? This all yeah, started this. On. Yeah. And it goes on in the last meeting of the people who had bought the land, the Masonian proprietors, who were very rich mercantile merchants from Portsmouth, which was the sort of power seat in New Hampshire to start, right there on the seacoast. They had their last meeting in 1849. So, <laughs> so let, let's put this into a little bit more perspective. We've got people who are settled or settling in the New Hampshire area and Massachusetts, and I understand there was a boundary dispute between New Hampshire and Massachusetts at some point. And then you've got folks over across the pond in England who claim that they own the property. You might get a tax bill from three different sources. And meanwhile, Possibly. the folks who are living in the wilderness trying to settle this country are the ones under the hardship, right? Yes. And more to the point, why should this paper claim have any force at all? I mean, you've just fought a revolution. So, so Captain John Mason's paper kingdom outlives, eight, by my count, eight monarchs, civil war in England, and revolution in America. So a property that this king... King James I had sanctioned, you fight a revolution, you fight a war, you're, you're starting, you have a new idea of property, and yet that claim, which is so vague, stands. Why? <laughs> it's a fiction that by getting the power of the law or force behind it becomes a fact is the best I can figure. I was equating it to, we were reading through this chapter again, and I was it made me think of like a kid at Thanksgiving dinner that licks their finger and touches all the rolls and goes, mine, 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 mine. It just I've seems never so. Seen that, but that would be about the same thing. <laughs> you, 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 are, you are too good a host to ever allow something like that. I know. Well, Howard, I, I, and I make no secret of this, but I often philosophically struggle with the concept of derivation of property rights. Like, where does the right to own real property come from? Okay, and you're talking about there being some pre-revolutionary war claim, and why should that ever survive? Because it's not the king's exactly. property anymore. But you got a great couple of lines on page 65 that, that deals with this concept of where do property rights derive from. And you, you split it into kind of two camps of thought. The first, and you call it a story, the first story says that owning land is a, quote, natural right predating the state existing among people in a primitive condition. That means that you don't need a government. You're born as a human. You can own real property. And then the other story, as you call it, and I happen to agree, is that private property is a, quote, conventional right, unquote, existing because of the state. And mm -hmm. which is it? But you know what the conclusion is, Howard? 
that whichever one of these camps of thought you're in, it means the property's mine. I don't care what your philosophy is. I get to have it because I'm a man. I'm a human. And that's what I struggle with. You know, as a right-of-way agent, as a right-of-way professional, as a philosopher, as an attorney, I always struggle with this when we talk about property rights. It's fascinating because you're so deep in your profession and you're still thinking about that. I find that kind of fascinating. Well, because it's a real question. It's it's a it's one of these questions that you realize it's almost as if you were out in a tightrope. I've heard another writer say this. I, th- I think it was Annie Dillard. It says if you walked out on a tightrope, but then if you start, oh my God, I'm on a tightrope, then you fall off. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's almost that same kind of thing, you know. Well, well, why? Why? You know, why do I get to draw a line around this land and say it's mine? Uh, what am I doing with it? Who says it's mine? It's a really, it's a really good question. Well, Howard, there's and and listen, you're a friend of ours, and I hate to put you on the spot, but I'm going to do it because that's going to make for a good discussion. But right. your book is inherently contradictory in nature, and I get it. I get it. On one hand, we talk about how the colonists and the settlers displaced indigenous people. And I don't know why it's theirs any more than anybody else's because they they weren't born there either. They migrated just like everyone else. But the, 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 we took the land away from others and claimed it for our own. But then your book turns around and we get into the human element of this where people currently occupying the property are being displaced, usually by a government agency, and woe is them. And I, I agree there's a great deal of sympathy there, but... That that's just an inherent tension in the message in this book, don't you think? You know, that's a really good point. In other words, why is say one of those families that I write about whose pipeline is suddenly showing up? Why is their claim valid? That's what you're asking, right? Well, I think their claim is valid, but it's I, I, we, we're kind of playing both sides of the fence here, and I'm doing it with you. I'm doing it with you. Number one, our American ancestors are here because of a land grab. They are. They are. And then number two, the current individuals who are impacted by right-of-way projects are the beneficiaries of that land grab from a couple of centuries ago. Yeah, I can't argue with you here. I think that's a really insightful point. I think what we're doing now, we displace the indigenous peoples, and now we're kind of playing cowboys and Indians among ourselves in, in a sense and, and mm-hmm. chasing each other around as we try to build more and more things where more and more people are in the way and all the easy places to be built have been built on. But I think your point, it's, it's a really interesting point. It's just one of the things is that in the Middle Ages, land and property, were the, a property and the family were the same thing. You couldn't sell it. So, mm-hmm. you had, you, so hence all that angst in uh, English novels and half of Masterpiece Theater, you know, <laughs> you so there was a complete identity. But then land becomes this commodity, this product, and people become placeless in a certain sense. And this is like a big change. And Alexis de Tocqueville, when he's here, mm-hmm. was at the 1820s, he talks about that. He was a, a French nobleman, and all of a sudden he's walking around here. Everybody's just bouncing around the continent. They're clearing land, and they're leaving before the first crop is in. And he just can't figure out what the heck's going on. And it's just this change in property. And in a sense, everybody is thrown back on themselves into the marketplace. Right, right. Your your point's a good point. Another theme of this chapter is you bring up the old adage that possession is nine-tenths of the law. Right. Yeah, what if it's nine-tenths of our history, I say? (laughs) That's right. 
And, you know, that seems to work in favor of the American colonists, did not work in favor of the Indians or the indigenous people who possessed it. Or I'm not even sure no. they thought they possessed it, but they, they, they lived off of it. They had a sense of land and territory. They definitely had territories right. that they belonged to. And they had places where everybody could come to, say, in the Salmon Run. They would all go to the falls. And that was a place of peace. And they would all be there together at, under agreement. So it's a different thing, but it, it was a complete system in itself. It's different from what we think of as land and possession. Obviously, they weren't out there pounding and chain link fences everywhere. Right. Uh, it's just different. <laughs> right, right. So it, the old possession is nine-tenths of the law, doesn't favor them, does favor our history, and then the pendulum seems to swing back against the folks who are occupying the farms that are in the path of a right-of-way project, where they absolutely possess it, and their nine-tenths is displaced very quickly through the concept of eminent domain. You know, in that chapter, The Pipeline Airbird, I talked about this thing that happened in Minnesota in the 70s. They had this very complex power plan to use, like soft coal, and they wanted to build these immense power lines across the state. And these farmers said no, and the farmers were about to win at the county commission, and then the power company changed the rules and went to the state, and they lost. So these farmers toppled, oh, God, it was like 14 or 15 power towers. A transmission towers. Amazing. It's an amazing story. I mean, it happened in the 70s, so there was no social media. So it kind of happened out there. But And then they ran a reform candidate, this woman, Alice Tripp, and she said the most amazing thing. She summarized the great challenge of these products by saying, asking, who sacrifices, who benefits, and who decides in America today? Mm, yes. And that is like every yes. conflict you get into. You. Who sacrifices, who benefits, and who decides? She said 1978, yeah, and she got about 4% of the vote. But she was squeezed out by the newspapers and everything like that. It's brilliant. It's, it's just brilliant. Any of these conflicts over roads, power lines, pipelines, windmills, that's the question constantly being debated. And it often gets down into this real technical stuff about who's right about what plots, what pollution, what this, what that. And then you get into a whole technocratic problem, experts versus experts, and it's a... It's very hard to discuss those things in a democracy and get precision on, particularly today, with how we talk to each other. Yes. This episode of Infrastructure Junkies is proudly brought to you by my company, Blackbird Right-of-Way. We specialize in relocation assistance services nationwide. From one parcel to 100, let Blackbird handle your relocation challenges. You can find out more about us at our website. It's blackbirdrow.com. That's blackbirdrow.com. That is a perfect segue into the second half of our discussion. And let me clarify some things I've said in the past about this inherent tension. Regardless of the philosophy behind property rights, the fact of the matter is, under the current law and under the current system of government, individuals can own real property. And then individuals who do own that real property can be displaced by a project. And that brings us to the human element that because we can own real property, because that's how we have evolved in this country, we become attached to our real property. And so we turn now to the chapter called The Pipeline in the Neighborhood. And I'm going to kick off this discussion with a passage from Howard's book on page 111. And it goes something like this. One day, you're taking your son to Cub Scouts, commuting to work, thinking of redoing your kitchen, 
and the next day your house is full of boxes of papers and your dinner talk is all about gas pipelines, the electric grid, and the dizzying array of government agencies and regulations. And your book doesn't say this, but to put that into context, that's when the man from the pipeline company shows up. Yeah, exactly. And, and that, that chapter starts as fellow Vince Primus, who's an acoustic oceanographer expert. Anyways, an engineer. Uh, he just kind of going to work in the morning and there's a guy standing on his driveway saying, oh, hey, hey, how you doing? Good morning. Look at this map I have on the hood of the car here. The pipeline is coming to your house from Pennsylvania, right from the frack field. It's going to go 200 feet from your door. Sign here, sign here, and sign here. And he's like, what are you talking about? I'm not signing anything. What is this about? And it was a complete ambush, and this was going on in all these towns all over the place. And it just became a very protracted struggle, and it took over these people's lives. They became experts and contacted experts in all the little technical facts that are fought over there about whether New England needed this gas, who was going to use this gas, how safe are pipelines, who says they're safe. They went to endless meetings deep into the night, marches, meetings with representatives, everything like that. It became their lives. And their land could have been taken by eminent domain. And further, under this project, they could have been forced to pay for it as a surcharge on their power bill or however it went. So, you know, back to the feudal ages in the sense in, in that they were being encumbered. They eventually dropped the gas pipeline after, after about a couple of years, like four years or something. But it was an incredible battle and it just took these people's lives over. To save a lot of words, this gets right to it. The thing to know about pipelines is that there's also these immense compressor stations they have to build to keep the pressure up. And it's a huge, noisy, industrial installation. And all of a sudden, you're out in the country. And the next thing you know, you're, you're next to this huge industry. And you can't get your house insured or anything if it's right next to it. Let me just read you what she said. To put it into context, this is a lady by the name of Holly Lovelace who was going to be impacted by a natural gas pipeline project. At one meeting on a hot summer night in the stuffy auditorium, Holly Lovelace, her voice quavering, got down on her knees and begged for her home, her deck where they loved to play cribbage, and the 22 acres with its woodlands, fish pond stream, and the night sky, quote, so dark you can see the Milky Way with all its brilliant clarity. Our home life, said Holly, is simple, but it is awesome and it is our American dream come true she told the state agency. But a letter with a map arrived in the mail. Their home would be just 1,500 feet from a compressor station. Quote, our home has been effectively condemned, she said as she struggled not to cry. Quote, we cannot refinance. We cannot sell because no bank will approve a mortgage in an impact zone from a possible pipeline explosion. Our homeowner's insurance provider will keep us on until the compressor station is built. But after that, we can't get insurance anymore. When we asked our attorney if they would buy or now unsellable and uninsurable home, he said, there's a long, expensive process for this. He gave us the name of some attorney in Washington. We don't have money to retain a lawyer. So next week, I will cash out my retirement account, and I will pay that lawyer to try and get back what was mine only a week ago. And then Holly Lovelace started to cry. I am begging you, she said, falling to her knees. I am begging you. And that, my friends, is the human impact to our industry. Setting aside the question of where the gas was, whether it was really needed, just the way it was presented, just the way people learned about it, was all wrong. There's a whole lot you can debate about the other side, which I just said, but there has to be a better way to build infrastructure in the country. And this is like a model of how not to do it. It's just so wrong. Well, this is your chance. Tell us why. 
because your listeners are folks that are working on behalf of the agencies. Why is it wrong? Well, in this, just it, it, there's no justice in it. There's no fair warning. There's no fair public debate in it. There's no fair public presentation. There's no respecting the rights of many private property holders all along the way, including land that has been set aside for conservation, which is a result of thousands of decisions, laws, and private donations and public donations. I would love to see an experiment in which you had something like an Oxford-style debate in which the company came forward and said, this is our plan. This is what we're going to do. And the regulatory agencies came forward and said, this is how we judge it. And then the experts and the other people who judge these projects came forward before the same audience and said, look, this is what's wrong with it. This is why pipelines are dangerous. They explode. They leak. They're happening all over the country. We don't need this gas. If we did this and this and this, it would be different. But we don't have that kind of form anywhere. It, it just doesn't happen. So what happens is you have this, uh, these people who are forced to become essentially energy experts overnight. And it's all fought out that way. The other thing that's overlooked is there's a lot of expertise out there. I mean, there are a lot of citizen scientists out there. And there should be some kind of representative citizen scientist board or body that vetted these things. Now, obviously, you have FERC and you have ISO and all these agencies. But what happens all the time is that these agencies become captured by the industries they're supposed to regulate because these are very technical issues and often the only industries know about it. And they lose the big picture. And if you go back and look at the law, there's a dozen other things they're supposed to be considering, and those fall by the wayside. And it, the whole thing just gets distorted. I mean, FERC, uh, who's in charge of approving pipelines, you know, never met a pipeline it didn't love. And, and that's, you can ask, and, and it's terrible. That's, and so they're not doing their job, at least at this point in the story. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, w- without endorsing everything that you've said and without adopting it, I find these discussions to be invaluable. Whether a listener agrees with what you said, some of our listeners work for pipeline companies and work for transmission companies that are governed by FERC, right? And so they're going to have a different perspective. But the message that I want everybody to get is that there's a human impact. There is your side of the story that you just presented and your opinions are valid as opinions. And we need to examine and debate these things because we're not manufacturing any more land. In fact, we're losing land to climate change, right? Yes. And we have more and more projects coming on board. And so it's only going to get worse. And I'm not saying not to build big projects. It's a big economy. You need big projects. But there has to be a different approach. Otherwise, you're going to constantly have this scrimmaging going on. There's got to be another way to present these ideas, another way to build some kind of consensus, another way to reevaluate what compensation is for people who are basically sacrificing for these projects. All that has to be worked out somehow. And your opinion on this, is that specific to pipeline projects? Or are you talking about any kind of... I, I think windmills, uh, mm-hmm. windmills, pipelines, power lines, highways, all these big things, big warehouses. Mm-hmm. I think one of the things that's happened is Oh, going back around the 1920s, we got the zoning laws we essentially have now, which are much derided because they kind of create this monoculture and housing and everything. But the good thing is that what it did is it separated industry from residential areas. You know, it would be great if you had corner stores and smaller, but no one was going to build a slaughterhouse next to your house anymore because of the <laughs> model right. zoning. <laughs> right. right. Now, 
that could happen. The modern equivalent, like you could have a compressor station next to you. You could have a windmill, an elegant looking thing from a distance that is just immense next to you with a road cut into it. You could have these power lines, which are much bigger than the power lines. All of a sudden that could be right next to you. Mm-hmm. So the entire landscape, which we had sorted out for good and for ill, obviously, is all jumbled. The, all the cards are scrambled. And I think that's what we're seeing. And I think we're going to see it more and more is this kind of confrontation because of the scale of things that we're looking at building and the fact that, you know, we're a country, what is it, 380 million, 340 million, 380 million? It's a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Um, The places we used to be able to build these things, you can't do that anymore. They've been built on. And there's also the whole question of economic justice. You know, you ram the highway through the poor neighborhood. You put the waste, the sewage treatment plant there. You'd put the airport there. You can't do that anymore. That was just so wrong. It was all the debilitating effects of that. So it's harder to build now. It just is. And I think we need to kind of get a little more democracy into the project, into the process, which I know if you were building those things, you don't want to hear because, oh, my God, there's nothing slower than people sitting around the room debating anything. It's agonizing. I mean, we have town meeting here. Something. It's just agonizing how long it takes. But there's uh-huh. got to be a better way. Well, Interesting, you know, before I read your book, I remember starting the chapter about Romaine Tenney and thinking, mm-hmm. oh, he didn't have a relocation agent. That would have made it better. And then you read the whole story and go, I could, no amount of money that I could have brought as a relocation agent would have made that better for him. And I think that sometimes those of us in this industry on the side of things that we are think, well, well, you can throw some money at it. It'll be fine. But when you talk about people identifying with their land and Holly begging on her knees for them to not take away what she has... There are so many factors that have nothing to do with money and that aren't compensable anyway. And I'll give you another example. I've, I've worked on a power line that had a, a compressor station. It was in the middle of a neighborhood, okay? Mm-hmm. And so they were purchasing that city block for the compressor wow. station. The people across the street who have been looking at their neighbor Sally May's house for the last 20 years now are going to look at a compressor station. And they're not getting compensated for that because they're not their land is not being purchased, right? That's I'll tell you. I hope I ever get another job in <laughs> electric transmission lines or compressor stations ever again, but I think that's unfair. If I bought a house and I, across the street is a lovely little bungalow and my neighbor lives there and then in 2 years it's a massive compressor station and I'm not compensated for that, that feels unfair to me. But that's just the way it's it is. It's as if it was the 1920s and someone just put a slaughterhouse across the street from you. Right. I mean, it's, yeah. it's this kind of, uh, it's this complete unsettling. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is this love that this fellow Vince Primus and his family had for their land, or, or Holly Lovelace has, or Romaine Tenney had. Isn't that what we want to cultivate in people? Don't we want people who have a real strong sense of being at home and aren't just skittering around, soulless, lost across the landscape, constantly just consuming everything, but are just happy to be home planting their dahlias and playing cribbage. And that's a great thing. That's That was once the American dream, wasn't it? You know, a house, a car, a decent education, a fair shot at a decent job, you know, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, which then begs the question is, what is the new American dream? Like, really, yeah, what well, is good it? Good luck answering that. Yeah. <laughs> Getting famous on TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> that's one of the that's one of the things we're facing right now with this refreshed discussion about equality and who gets to go to college and who who I mean that's what we're trying to sort out right now I think and what's that going to be Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I want to go back to what you 
mentioned earlier as we entered this discussion, because I think it's a great title for this episode, which is Who Sacrifices, Who Benefits, and Who Decides? It's like, who's the kingmaker? Who plays God? Whose job is that? On some level, it's supposed to be FERC's. And I think what I'm hearing you say is you don't feel the agency's doing its job. It's not looking out for all of the interests. It just looks out for some of them. Yeah. Uh, as I saw a play out in that was about now eight or 10 years ago. Yes, uh, absolutely. All those, I mean, for those people, FERC was, was the F word. It was a swear <laughs> word to them. They had a way of pronouncing it, you know, FERC. <laughs> and they, just felt complete, they felt completely unrepresented. Yeah, yeah. I want to, before we wrap up, I want to cover one more theme of this chapter. And this is me kind of summarizing it in my own words, but it's almost heartbreaking, the, for lack of a better description, whimsical nature of how these projects are handled. In other words, an agency shows up, they scare the bejesus out of people who've lived on the property sometimes for generations who think they're going to lose everything, cause all kinds of stress, force them to essentially take up a second job of campaigning against the project, and the next thing you know, it's canceled. <laughs> I mean, good for the landowner, but daggone. And, you know, I think you said that really well. And as I followed it, I forget how many years this went on, five, six years. And as I followed this story and I would go to meetings and come back and go, You'd see different people drop out of being in the lead. Things happened at work. Things put stresses on their family. Divorces might be looming. It's a tremendous stressor, a tremendous stressor on people who get involved in this. And that chapter ends with Vince sitting there talking about teaching his Cub Scout son, you know, the Pledge of Allegiance and what a, what a democracy is. And he's reading this to his son. And he's saying, no, this isn't true anymore. What happened here? What happened here? And then he just sits there quietly, just totally, completely disillusioned. It's just rough. I mean, they're still together, but there are other people who go through this, and it's not for the best. Yes. They come out the other side, and they're just completely different. That, my friends, is the perfect note to end on. Howard, thank you so much for round three. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Howard. Thank you both. It's just terrific talking to you both.